Welcome to another podcast by Victoria Point Baptist Church. We are glad you have joined us today. If you would like to connect with us as we aim to introduce people to Jesus by connecting with our local community and beyond, you can find out more at vpbc.com.au. Father God, we, we thank you. You are faithful. Your name is beautiful. It is wonderful. And it is powerful. Father, we thank you for a spirit of revelation in this place today. Lord, that we might encounter your love through your word. Uh, we ask that you would have your way and that you would do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Ben. Can we give him a hand? Thanks, guys. How is everybody? That's good. Could I have that light down just a tad? Please. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> uh, my name's Sean. For those that don't know me, um, I'm a part of the team here. It's great that you can be with us. Welcome to everybody watching online. Um, it's sad that you can't be with us, um, but we pray that God would bless you just the same as everyone here will be blessed this morning. So we're going to continue our um, our series in Esther, I think this is the second, second to last, is it Sam? Second to last um, in this book, and we're going to look at chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, we're going to read the entire chapter 6, and it'll be on the screen if you don't, if you'd like to follow. It says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden and with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. I would have loved to see his face. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. 
While they were, stu- while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. I just want to share from a simple thought this morning, divine reversals. I might just warn you, I might get emotional. I'm, 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 having, a bit of, I'm having one of those mornings, um, so it might get messy, um, but it's okay. It's okay. I remember um, one day I was teaching my eldest son, Benjamin, um, to spell a word. I thought I was teaching him anyway. Um, he was about six or seven at the time, so I won't tell you what word, because um, I'll probably look quite foolish. Um, but he says to me, he says, Dad, that's not how you spell it. You spell it like this. And in my pride, and hopefully to kind of save face, I went and looked, and looked in the dictionary and I found out that he was teaching me to spell that day. Um, my self-esteem plummeted, um, but I did um, withhold dinner just to keep that control. Um, but just the irony of you know, the teacher being taught. One of my favourite cartoons growing up was the Roadrunner cartoons. Now, I asked this last Friday night, and none of the young guys really knew about it. I was a bit saddened by it, but does anyone remember this? Amen. Amen. The reason I liked them was simply, um, I love rooting for the underdog, and I, I still do today, but always wanted to see Coyote catch the roadrunner. There was one episode where he became quite small and he held onto his ankle um, so the coyote believed that he had caught him, but he hadn't. Um, But there was something kind of strangely satisfying about watching Roadrunner continually escape the the threats and the traps and the, um, you know, the schemes and the plans of the, the coyote. And have Coyote fall into his own traps time and time again was kind of ironic. And as I look back, there was a well-laid plan in each episode and then just this ironic twist that saw um, him fall prey, Coyote fall prey to his own plan. A reversal would take place. Most of the episodes involved a little pile of birdseed which was used to tempt um, Roadrunner. Uh, So the trap would take effect, but what would happen is Roadrunner would take the seed, take the, you know, get tempted in, um, but the trap either wouldn't work quick enough or it just wouldn't work. And so Coyote would come along quite frustrated and he'd start stamping around on the trap only to have um, that trap come and bite him. Have you experienced this in your life? A divine reversal where the odds were stacked against you. You felt cornered, stuck, overwhelmed by circumstances, you couldn't see a way out. Maybe, maybe it caused you great anxiety, not knowing what would happen or how it would happen, not having the details, feeling like you were defeated, like that was all that was left. Maybe it pushed you to the edge where you stepped and you know, started to fight for survival because you felt like there was no other choice, that God seemed absent. He just wasn't, he just wasn't there. He wasn't close. What I love about the story of Esther is it continually reminds us that we have a God who takes care of the details. No matter how big or how small those details are, a God who knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't experience pain or suffering or circumstances that go against us, 
but it does mean that we have a Jesus who promised to be our ever-present help in times of trouble, that he is for us, that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this is what we have, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Colossians 1.15 says, We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And this is easy to accept when things are good, when things are going well, but when there's sickness, when there's injury, when there's suffering, when there's pain, when there's financial hardship, when there's relational breakdowns, when there's marital unfaithfulness, it's harder to accept, and sometimes it's extremely hard to even believe that God is taking care of those things, that he is in the background taking care of the details. But all things must pass through an eternal filter. God must give the all clear for these things to take place. We read in the book of Job that Satan asks God for permission to test him to allow these series of events, these circumstances to take place in his life. It says, all right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan, do whatever you want and every, with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. What God can prevent in his power, he sometimes permits in his wisdom. And we see this play out constantly through the book of Esther as God permits Haman, the, Haman and the king to place an irrevocable law in place that potentially sees the destruction of the Jewish people. We also see that God permits Esther to be taken from her home and placed into the king's beauty pageant, where I'm sure many crazy things happened. We see God permit two of the king's officers to plot to kill the king. A series of circumstances, permitted events that seem to go against God's chosen people, the Jew, Jewish people. They're continually backed into a corner. And you see this throughout the Bible. They're continually backed into the corner. The odds are always stacked against them. God permitted a series of events because he sees the end from the beginning. He sees everything in between and he knows that he's going to get the glory. Haman is permitted in this story to manipulate and to bribe the king to kill an entire race of people. That's crazy. God permitted Haman to wipe out his chosen people. Everything in my life, everything in your life, without exceptions, God has permitted to take place. I just want to say that again. 
everything without exception, whether good or bad or ugly or beautiful, he's permitted it to take place. Our God isn't taken by surprise. He's not behind the eight ball. If it's hard and it's happening, I want to encourage you to lift your eyes off the circumstance and look to the one who is going to deliver you. There will be a divine reversal in our lives. It will turn around for our good and for his glory. Did you know that God isn't surprised by your sin? The things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we watch, the things that we don't do sometimes. He sees and he knows, yet sometimes we forget that God knows we're human. We pray, God, take this from me. Nothing changes. He's permitting it. Did he make you sin? No. Does he like what you did? No. But he didn't stop you, and he could have. The Apostle Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, but God didn't remove it. We don't know what the thorn represented in his life, but we know that Paul didn't want it there, that, it wasn't, that he felt it wasn't good for him. And God's response to Paul was the same response to us today. My grace, my strength is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. See, in our free will, he allows us to make mistakes, to fail. And it's okay. He knows what's going on. So let's lift our eyes from our sin and don't let shame and condemnation take us prisoner. We'd keep walking forward, that we'd keep failing forward and look to the one who saves. Saves you and loves you in spite of you. May we stop trying to be free and look to the one who is our freedom. He is your freedom. Freedom's found in him alone, not the other way around. Sometimes we look and try and be free and then so we can have Jesus. But if we go to Jesus, freedom is the fruit that comes with that level of intimacy. My grace is sufficient. It is finished is a statement that Jesus made on the cross. It was kind of his checkmate move. But immediately after the fall in Genesis 3.15, we see the first move of God, the first proclamation of the gospel. As God declared to the serpent in the garden, he will bruise your heel, but he will crush You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, Jesus will suffer greatly. It might even look like he's losing, but he'll destroy you. He'll crush your head. The victory is his. And we, as the children of God, get to enjoy those spoils today. The victory is ours because it's his. A good chess player is thinking about the end game from the very first move. God had a plan before mankind stuffed up. If you like, Jesus wasn't a second choice. God wasn't playing catch up. God knows the end from the beginning. And so with this in mind, we understand that Jesus wasn't a plan B. He wasn't a plan B. He was always the plan. Christ in us is the only hope of God getting glory out of us. God permitted the events in the garden to get Christ in us for our good and for his glory. He wasn't surprised by it. And as we come to Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And for me, this highlights 
the enemy's plans failing time and time again as they tried to prevent him being born. They tried to prevent him becoming our saviour. And Jesus establishing his rule on the earth one person at a time. There's some incredible parallels through the book of Esther. They show us Jesus. And I just want to look at one parallel and hope that we might see ourselves for who we truly are and that we might see Jesus for who he truly is and what he has done for us. Chapter 6 is a turning point in the story, as I said. But that's from our point of view. God was always working in the background. He was always working through it. He had moved the pawns and the king and the queen. And we see this set up for a divine reversal. Specifically, we read in chapter 2 that Mordecai happened to overhear these two officials plotting to kill the king. But he only overheard that because Esther was taken from her home and placed into a palace. And Haman uh, Mordecai decided that he would station himself at the gates. Esther was queen as a result of Queen Vashti being banished. She was banished because of the king's absurd request that she refused to, to comply with. And that absurd request came from a night, or should I say 180 nights of drunkenness. But we see one move after another, after another as Esther comes to the king and Haman and asks for both of them to attend a banquet that she would prepare. Haman was feeling pretty right after this. And it says in chapter 5, verses 9, that he was happy and in high spirits after this. But then he sees Mordecai and he's absolutely enraged because it also says in verse 9 that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence. Haman consults with his wife and his friends. He brags about how amazing he is. He tells them how wealthy he is, how blessed he is with all of his sons and how the king has honoured him and elevated him above everyone. Haman is incredible. You just have to ask him and he'll tell you about it. Does anyone have anyone like that in their life where like my fish is bigger than yours and that's always bigger and better? No? If you don't then you might be that person. Just saying. (laughs) But probably not. I won't go there. Haman means magnificent. His name means magnificent. It means celebrate. And it means noisy. We get the word celebrity from his name. Haman thought he was pretty good. He liked to be celebrated. And because Mordecai refused to celebrate him, he was absolutely ticked off. And he reacted to it. Haman's pride demanded honour and worship. It demanded that people would fear him, demanded approval and acceptance from people. And so when Mordecai rejected him publicly, it hurt his pride. It crushed his pride so much that killing Mordecai wasn't enough. All of them, I want them all gone. He wanted to wipe out an entire race of people. Very disproportionate. To the problem. Can you relate to Haman? Our pride, our self-righteousness wants to be noticed, approved of by others, accepted by others, a celebrity. Some of us pull that off better than others, all the feelers. 
But we like to be the one. We like to be loved, accepted, approved of by everyone. And sometimes it comes at great cost. We get angry, we get frustrated. Maybe hate rises up within us when someone rejects us, when someone doesn't look upon us with favour. If you've lived even a moment, maybe from school, (laughs) you know what it's like to be dismissed or overlooked or rejected. We all do. But the father said something to Jesus before he had done anything, before he had entered into ministry, before he did anything. And that echoes in our hearts, and that's a word for us today and every day. You're my dearly loved children, and you're well pleased. I'm pleased with you. Sometimes in our pride, we want to alter ourselves based on what others think of us. We want to alter others based on the way that they think of us. Haman was reacting to Mordecai because Mordecai's rejection revealed a prideful insecurity within him. And his reaction was absolutely terrifying. Would you agree? I know sometimes it's hard to see the magnitude of what's happening when it's just a story, but I'm, it was terrifying. It wasn't enough that he had the attention and the honour of everybody else. There was this one person that wasn't honouring him that angered him so much. Can you relate to Haman? Think nine things go well, but one thing doesn't. And so we fixate on this one negative experience at the expense of all of those positives. Haman couldn't get past one person and he allowed that one person to unhinge him completely. Maybe there's something in our lives that takes our eyes off of Jesus. Maybe there's one thing Maybe something doesn't go the way that we think it should and we look past all of those positives we fixate and our eyes come off Jesus. You can do 99 things correct and one thing incorrect and people will remember the one thing that we did that was incorrect and ignore the 99 correct things. You can have nine people accept you, approve of you, And one person reject you, disapprove. And like Haman, it can make us go crazy when we react. And I just want to encourage us today that we only need one person's approval and acceptance. And we have that in Christ. We are loved, we're accepted, we're significant, we're approved, we're his. We have all that. We're secure in him. He cares for you, so who cares? what anybody else thinks. It's easier said than done, but we're on a journey. It's okay. Let God be true and every man be a liar. But can you relate to Haman? Haman's unforgiving heart sent him to devise a plan. He delighted in this, like a psychopath, he delighted in this plan to build a pole to impale Mordecai. He couldn't move past it at all. But Haman is you and I, apart from Christ, that is. He represents the flesh of man, influenced and moved by human weakness, the unabiding Christian, trying to do it all in our own strength. can relate to that. We try. Doing it in our abilities, our power, and we end up reacting to situations 
to people, often in disproportionate ways. In Genesis, we see its effect on Cain when his offering wasn't approved. Sin was crouching at the door, desiring to have him, and God said, you must rule over that. But Cain allowed rejection to rule his life instead, and it caused him to murder his brother. The king couldn't sleep, and so the record of Mordecai's deed was read, and the king and Haman came up with this plan to honour Mordecai. Divine reversal happened. Haman happened to walk into the king's court, pleased with his work, ready to present his plans to kill Mordecai, and the king asks Haman a question. And Haman gets really excited because he's extremely self-centred and he thinks, I'm it. I'm the one. And then God makes this move and sets up this checkmate. He flips the script. He turns a curse into a blessing. Haman ready to impale Mordecai above the province. So everyone can see this is what happens when you don't fear me. God turns it around. Haman's ordered to lead Mordecai through the streets, proclaiming before him, this is what happens to the one the king delights in. He was humiliated. And so furthermore, we read that he was impaled on the cross, uh, on the, getting ahead of myself there, he was impaled on the pole that was built for his enemy. Katrina told me once that of unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Haman couldn't move past one person, and Mordecai ended up taking his permission, uh, position as second in charge to the king, and Haman ended up where Mordecai was meant. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and this kind of sums up better than I could what's happening here. Isaiah 40, uh, 54, verse 17 says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. It doesn't say that a weapon won't be formed. It says that the weapon that is formed won't prosper. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, the story of Esther is just a shadow of a coming reality. It's simply a story that points us to Jesus. We don't know whether this is a true story or whether it's just a fable whether it's historically accurate or not. But there was a divine reversal that took place that we can relate to 2000, more than 2,000 years ago. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He took a punishment that we deserved. In the book of Isaiah, it says, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. A divine reversal, a turnaround, a seeming unexpected victory took place. And under the influence of the enemy and sin, we built a pole to impale Christ as a result of our sinful state. We were God's enemy. We thought we were doing God's work. We thought God approved it. We were feeling pretty good about it. Just a side note, Jesus was also led through a city, not on a horse ridden by a king, but on an unridden donkey 
written by the King of Kings. The people shouted, Honoured is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees were telling Jesus, tell them to be quiet, tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, if the people stop shouting, even the stones will begin to shout out. A royal robe was placed on Christ, except he was mocked and he was spat at. What God could prevent in his power, he permitted in his wisdom. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As the band comes up. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we know the story. Christ travailed for you and I. Let this cup pass. Let this poison, this unforgiveness pass, but not my will. And God said, son, drink it. Let this anger, this hate pass, but not my will. And God said, son, drink it. Let this sickness, this cancer, this disease, this genetic problem pass. God said, son, drink it, drink it, drink it. Porn, worry, addiction, pride, control, abuse, back pain, selfishness. Let it pass, but not my will. And God said, son, drink it. There's no other way. Drink it. In the story of Esther, Haman got what he deserved. There was a reversal that took place. But when Jesus was nailed to the cross, we didn't get what we deserved. Christ took our place. There was a divine reversal. And we were given a second chance. We were empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we would no longer live the life of a Haman. We would no longer walk after the flesh, but that we would walk after his spirit. We've been accepted by God. We've been approved by God. We've been loved by God. We are loved by God. We don't need the approval of others. We're empowered to accept his help, to receive his mercy that he's so willing to give. Like Wiley Coyote, there are many times when Satan must have thought his plan was foolproof. I got him. And we read that through the Gospels. We read where they picked up stones to stone Jesus, or they edged him and pushed him to a cliff. But then he walked through the crowd because his time had not yet come. And we see this spiritual battle happening throughout the entire Bible and we see it in this book, an unseen game of chess. The battle between light and dark, between good and evil, between death and life, between spirit and flesh. The devil setting traps and plans to break the messianic lineage and prevent Christ being born, but he was. And that's what we celebrate today and every day. The divine reversal saw Christ take the keys of death and the grave. We deserve death and he gave us life. What the enemy meant for evil, he's turned it around for our good and for his glory. And so when things aren't going as well as what we think, it's finished. The work's been done. When sickness has a hold, cancer is the diagnosis. It is 
finished. It doesn't, we're not denying the problem, but we're declaring the promise. When I'm struggling with sin in my life, it is finished. When a person rejects me, it is finished. Would you stand with me? God said to the serpent in the garden after man had fallen, he will crush your head. Keywords will and crush. The devil had no chance then and he doesn't have a chance now. Right from the start, it was finished. Right here in this moment, we live from this powerful truth. This is our starting point. It is finished. The punishment that was meant for us, he took it and he pardoned us. The finished work of Christ is where we start. Every circumstance, every situation is navigated from this position. It is finished. Do you believe that today? I wanted to be a little bit vulnerable. This morning, who knows that none of us are perfect. So this morning I I woke up and I had kind of God, I was a bit snappy, let's just say that. I was a little bit snappy. I had a bit of a late night. I was a little bit snappy. And um, I was with my eldest son. And, uh, you know, who puts a higher standard on your eldest son that they should set the example? Well, I thought that was the case this morning. And um, I snapped at him. And God said to me, son, that's a Haman mentality. You hold him to a higher standard so that others would see, the other children would see, this is what happens when you don't respect dad. But at what expense? You know, it's not about making mistakes, and I'm sure there's situations that you relate to yourself. It's not about whether we fail or not, but it's continually responding in repentance with God living this life of repentance, promoting his presence in our lives. It is finished. Do you believe that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your work has accomplished far more than we would ever understand or imagine, that there is a depth to our salvation that we have not experienced today. Father, I pray that you would take us deeper. Lord, that we would be more aware every moment of your continual presence in our lives, whether our situations are painful, whether we're struggling. Lord, we don't want to deny the problem, but we certainly want to declare the promise that you are with us, that you are for us, that you are Emmanuel, that it is finished. Help us to hold on, Lord, if we're here this morning and... Maybe we've let go of, the, of, of holding to the promise. Pray that you just continually remind us of what you have done for us. May we believe that promise, that it is finished for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.